0: In the, the compass of our lives, we'll have many light afflictions preparing us for many difficult afflictions. And and the reality what we have before us here in Job is that it's not just the physical afflictions that come upon us, but a deep darkness of soul. Sometimes a depression uh, out of which there seems to be de- deliverance. We will feel like the psalmist in Psalm um, 88 when he cries out to God, I'm reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, for they're cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. You've afflicted me with all your waves. You've removed my acquaintances far from me. You've made me an object of loathing to them. But I, O oh Lord, have cried out to you for help. And in the morning, my prayer comes before you. O oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? I was afflicted, about to die from my youth on. I suffer your terrors. I'm overcome. Your burning anger has passed over me, and you've removed lover and friend far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Now, of course, as you read this, I trust, as I've already pointed out, that you'll recognize that this is particularly prophetic of our savior this is exactly the soul darkness that he had as he hanged on the cross on mount calvary but i trust also we've been in job long enough to know that we have here a reflection of the very sorrows of job that were not merely or even primarily physical sorrows were they they were soul sorrows god had hidden himself from him god had been his friend and now he 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 thought that God was his enemy. He cried out. Acquaintances were removed from him. There seemed to be no release for him. And, and that is how it is sometimes. If, if you are in a deep and dark depression, I trust that you've not been there, and some of you probably have, and that you won't have to go there. So I also wrestled with other analogies to, to help you get inside Job's shoes, so to speak. Um, Think of a person who absolutely is innocent of a crime. Uh, And yet he has been condemned, guilty, and under conviction and judgment. And he is forsaken by those who should understand that he would never do such a thing. And in the midst of that, he feels uh, forsaken by God. and, And he has no hope for deliverance in this life. Now, that's where Job is. Or another analogy since we pray every week for the persecuted church try to imagine yourself like one of those people like a brother or a sister who's been arrested for the faith their faith in the lord jesus christ and their neighbors think well you know, he deserves that because after all he he doesn't follow our ways he, he doesn't follow our culture he doesn't follow, she doesn't follow our religion and so uh, they believe you deserve what is happening to you. And you're cast into prison. But when you're in prison, what do they say to you? If you'll just deny this Jesus, as he believes, be well. And the temptation, it's, they're just words. Can't you simply uh, say those words and move on with life? But in conscience... One cannot accept material relief in the midst of that dark oppression. Now, that's where friends are this day the world. It would be wrong for them to deny Christ. I, I know a minister who was charged of things of which he said he was innocent. And yet his lawyer said, you just need to plead guilty to a lesser charge and you'll be free. If you fight this thing, you might lose. And so he pled guilty. And I said to him, you know, you dishonored the name of Christ for your own skin. And that's what what Job's wrestling with here. Does he disown his spiritual hope for material gain? Is he beaten down now by the oppressors? Are you beaten down in your own conscience? So last week we talked about dark providences of God and How in the midst of dark providences, we are to reject false interpretations of dark providences. We are to assert the sovereignty of God in dark providences. And we are to appeal to God in the midst of dark providences. So Job ends on this uh, appeal of faith in the midst of great darkness. That's where he picks up now in chapter 17. How does faith act in the midst of dark Providences. What are you and I to do in the midst of dark providences? So we see how the sorely afflicted believer gropes by faith in the darkness. The sorely afflicted believer gropes by faith in a spiritual darkness. And we see three things here about faith of the severely afflicted um, uh, believer. Cast himself by faith on God comforts himself that his trials will actually be a means of encouragement to the church and then castigates the materialism that's offered as the way out so in the first five verses we see that the severely afflicted believer as he gropes in faith casts himself on god Job begins by reiterating his lament in verse 1 and 2. Uh, My spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. The grave is ready for me. Surely mockers are with me. And my eye gazes on their provocation. Just as you would cry out if you had dislocated your arm or your shoulder in pain. Job is crying out with a dislocated soul. Joel is wailing uh, before God. He picks really how he concluded uh, the exercise of faith in chapter 16 verse 22 when a few years have passed i shall go the way of no return life is over for me here my spirit is broken but that's not just physically remember the broken spirit of job is this darkness this hiddenness of god that he has no communion with god god's not answering him And his soul is wailing uh, in response to that. His spirit is broken. His days are extinguished like a a candle flickering in a a windy room soon to be um, quenched. And the grave is ready for me. And the word he uses here is graves in the plural. Perhaps it's the family, family cemetery of which he thinks now is they've got a plot already there for him and escaping wide open waiting for him. Calvin suggests that by graves, he in the plural he actually talks about, he's surrounded by a hundred deaths. But the reality of death is what lay before him. Now, they'd come and offered him, if he repented, accusing him of hypocrisy, that God would restore all of his possessions to him. His response to that is, it is folly. It doesn't help my soul. It doesn't in any way sustain me. In fact, he says, surely mockers are with me and my eye gazes on their provocation. He calls these counselors, these friends, mockers. Picking up on what he said earlier in chapter 12, verse 4. I'm a joke to my friends. The one who called on God and answered him. The just and blameless man is a joke. They're mocking him with this absurd accusation that this godly man was a gross hypocrite and sinner. And he can't escape it. Their mockery, he says, my eye gazes, it literally lodges, takes residence. There's no release from the provocation. And remember what we said before about this idea of provocation. These men are serving as tempters of Job. They are provoking Job because he sees no way out to deny God and die. But there's no other solution, according to them, for a man in his situation. So what does he do? He calls out to heaven. Then verses 3 through 5, faith, barely, but faith reaches up. Lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? For you've kept their hearts from understanding. Therefore, you will not exalt them. He who informs against a friend for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children will languish. Rather, Hebrews tells us that faith is a substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And Job now is, is groping in faith. And he's looking to heaven for vindication. And for the judgment of his enemies. now he's looking to heaven on the basis of what he just confessed in chapter 16. In verse 21 uh, or or 19. Even now behold my witness in heaven. My advocate, my witness is on high. My friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. Oh that a man might plead with God. As a son of man with his neighbor. You see faith groping face looking. That's what he comes back to now. He's appealing to God. He's appealing to this witness, this advocate. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? The word is literally strike a hand, this idea, who is there is going to take a handshake? Who is it going to reconcile me to God? Who is it going to vindicate my case? What he's longing for, uh, this one Uh, this mediator who would step forward as as the surety, the guarantor that Job is not a wicked man, uh, but Job, in fact, is a righteous man by God's grace and justification. It's interesting. The Westminster Annotations, which was put together mostly by men who served at the Westminster Assembly, translates and explains verse 3 this way. Appoint, I pray thee, my surety with thee, Who is he then that will strike upon my hand? That is, appoint Christ who is with thee in heaven and hath undertaken to be my surety. Appoint him, I say, to plead my cause and stand up for me. Then no man will dare contend with me. That's what they saw here. I think they're right. Job's sight of Christ is growing. It'll come to a climax in chapter 19. But there's this... God contending with God in heaven. This one he wants to be the pledge. This one he wants to be his guarantor and his surety to guarantee that things will be right. Even though in this life he sees no vindication, he sees no acceptance with God, God's turned against him. He believes that there will be one who will make him right with God. And because of that one, he also believes then of a vindication with respect to his. Enemies, his his counselors, his supposed friends. So he says, uh, because there is this in heaven, for um, you've kept their heart from understanding. He acknowledges now that in all of their mockery and all of their false accusations, that God has blinded them. Again, we see this growth. He he doesn't know what's going on, but he knows they're wrong. And thus, because he believes in God's sovereignty, he believes that um, God's blinded him. You know, God does blind sinners. You need to understand that. If you're not a Christian here th- this morning, and, uh, th- you'll hear things and see things that won't make any sense to you. Uh, and that's because as long as you are in your natural condition, uh, you cannot understand spiritual things. Or you're blind to your own condition. Uh, The lostness that you have and and the danger of a soul hanging over the the gaping mouth of hell. It is an awful thing when God blinds a sinner. And thus we, we should call out to God to have mercy on us and to open our eyes. Because only in knowing him is there eternal life. But God will do that to us as Christians as well, particularly if you pursue error. Or if you harden yourself in sin, God will put a veil over your eyes as well. Don't play games with God. Because this is what, as he did it to Pharaoh, he's done it now to Job's friends. You kept their heart from understanding. Literally, you hid their heart from understanding. Because it's of God, he says, therefore, you will not exalt them. They are not going to prevail. They might prevail. In this life, but they're not going to prevail. You're not going to exalt them. And then he utters what's probably a proverb He who informs against friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also will languish. Now he utters what is going to happen to his friends if they continue in this course of action. But notice how he describes them. They are ones who inform or literally speak against a friend. And the King James says, Flatter but the much better translation is what we have here. He who informs against a friend for a share. A share. A share of the spoil is what the New American Standard supplies. Um, there's a couple of ways to understand this. One is those marauders in town and to save your own skin, you say, well, that guy down the street, that's the house where He lives, or perhaps, again, it's the persecutors, and they're there. And are there any Christians on your street? Yeah, Uh, that third house down on the right, they're Christians. Uh, Inform against a friend. During World War II, the Republic of Ireland supposedly was neutral, but supposedly they lit all the lights along the coast leading right up to Belfast. So when German bombers came uh, to bomb the shipyards in Belfast, they could find Belfast in the blackout. That's the idea, informing against someone for their destruction. But is it also possible that Job is now to wonder about the motives of these people? They came with good intentions, but as they've said and as they've judged him to be this gross sinner, perhaps you're going to think, well, God's going to judge him and we then can collect the spoil of his land because he and his family are going to be wiped out. And so he perhaps even begins to wonder about what their motives are. But notice the warning. The eyes of his children also will languish. That they will be judged eventually by God, but it will carry on to subsequent generations. Again, it's very important to understand this. God doesn't judge children for the sins of their fathers directly. He gives children over to the sins of their fathers and then judges them. And that is a very um, solemn note for those of us who are parents to keep in mind that if in certain areas uh, we practice sin, that's what's attached, isn't it, to the second commandment. Um, if we practice sin in certain areas, God will visit that very sin upon our descendants under the third and fourth generation. So uh, the eyes of their children, Job's eyes are languishing. The eyes of their children will languish. And so Job uh, cast himself by faith on god he he saw but a little bit but where we sit this morning we have the full daylight of the completed work of christ don't we and and paul picks up on the concept here in romans 8 we had verse 31 for our meditation but 31 to 34 what then shall we say to these things that these things that the persecutions, the, the trial and, and turmoil that's in the world. If God is for us, who is against us? And why do you know he's for you? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give you all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus who died Yes, brother, who was raised at the right hand of God, intercedes for us. He is the man. He is the mediator. He is the surety. He's there on our behalf. And there is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, that is great comfort for you in the midst of depression. When you can see no light, you may still tell yourself. You may read yourself the scripture. In persecution, in false accusations, in rejection by others, here is where you turn. There is a man for you in heaven, the God-man, Christ Jesus. But understand a couple of things. You must have a good conscience to make this appeal. If you are um, not repenting of sin, if you're living in sin, even as a Christian, um, your conscience will not allow you to make this confident appeal to Christ. No, you must deal with the sin in your life. And, and sometimes, uh, perhaps maybe most times, that depression is going to come from unresolved guilt. You must deal with the guilt first in confession and forsaking the sin. Then you can appeal to the man in heaven. But furthermore, this if you're not a Christian, you have no appeal to heaven. You can have no confidence that God is for you. In fact, God says very clearly, he's against you. He set against you uh, not in the mysteries of dark providences, as we've talked about last week. No, he set himself against you as a righteous, just judge. And he holds you under condemnation for your sins. And perhaps even now your conscience will bear testimony to you. To you. You've had hard times, you're having difficulties. And your conscience is telling you it's because you are estranged from God. Would you not this morning want to know what we know? What Paul declares here, that I have a, a person in heaven. That God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up freely for me. And there's no condemnation because God has justified me. Christ died for me, was raised from the, again the right hand of God. This is the hope, dear friend, of anyone who... Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't have to know a great deal. You know your conscience is beating you up. You know life is miserable because of God's judgment. But there's hope in Christ Jesus. Look to him. So the sorely afflicted believer um, gropes in darkness by casting himself in faith on God. Uh, next, the severely effectively believer comforts himself with the fact that his life can be a witness and testimony to others. Now, this is a new insight here for dear Job in verses 6 through 9. But he, God, has made me a byword of the people, and I am uh, one at whom men spit. My eye has also grown dim because of grief, and, and all my members are as a shadow the upright will be appalled at this and the innocent will stir up himself against the godless nevertheless the righteous will hold to his way and he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger he continues to lament now his social problems Uh, we see here that there's a a group of people from uh, the villages neighborhood the town of the countryside that are listening to this conversation and we'll know from later, as we've already seen once, that Job's acquaintances are, are turning against him as well. We've seen it, his wife. Uh, but now he says that these bystanders, these people who are standing around listening to this elaborate conversation, why he's become a byword. He's a proverb in the community. Oh, that great man, Job. Look what's happened to him. He's such a terrible and wicked sinner. In fact, the contempt was so great, and he repeats this again in chapter 30, they spit on him. Now, there's no greater way to show contempt, is there, to spit in someone's face. They were spitting on Job out of contempt, that what was happening to him was, in fact, deserved, so that his eye has grown dim because of grief. He has wept so much, as he says in chapter 16, verse 20, my eye weeps to God, or verse sixteen. My face is flushed with weeping, and deep darkness is on my eyelids. His eyes grown dim with grief, and his body is emaciated. As again he has said earlier um, in chapter uh, sixteen, that um, verse eight. You've shriveled me up; it's become a witness, and my leanness rises up against me. It testifies to my face. He's but. A mere shadow, physically, of what he once was. And everybody is gawking and gossiping and pointing the figure and spitting. But now look, in the midst of this obnoxious crowd, there's another group of people. The upright, and that is in the plural, the upright ones will be appalled at this. And the innocent will stir up himself, now the singular, against the godless. Nevertheless the righteous, again singular, will hold his way. And he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. Notice that as Job speaks now about a group of godly people who are there as well, he uses language very similar to what God has said about him. God said that Job was blameless, upright, a God-fearer, turned away from evil. He says that in there, in this group was a group of people, more than one. They were the upright ones, walking by God's law. They were the innocent ones, blameless, who weren't sinless. They confessed their sins and walked in godliness. And uh, they were righteous, and they had clean hands. And often the Bible puts the clean hands with the inward heart issues so we'll know that they were sincere. And they were performing acts of righteousness. This is amazing. Have you thought about I mean, we all think about Job, this amazing um, comet, like the green comet that passed over and won't come back for 50,000 years. And Job's kind of a comet in the sky, like Melchizedek. <laughs> there was a godly community living around Job. That becomes evident later as well. But here's the first insight into this that as the church is languishing in exile in Egypt, That God has kept also other witnesses alive. And I when I read this, I was reminded of that glorious statement in our Confession of Faith, chapter 25, on church, that God has always had a church in this world. It might be obscure. I'm sure that as we sit here this morning, there are Christians around the world who have no freedom for public worship, but God's got a church there. And God had a church here. Thousands of years ago, and the church were described as the upright ones who were um, righteous and innocent and kept clean hands. And and Job now encourages himself because they are observing as well, not just the not just the mockers, but the godly, and a number of things now are happening. Uh, they are appalled. He says that. Um, they are appalled, astonished at this. They're astonished. And, uh, and the innocent will stir up himself against the godless. Now, there's two things. That they were astonished at a couple of things. They were astonished that a man of Job's godly character and reputation would suffer like this at the hand of God. They didn't understand any better than he did. But they also were appalled They knew better, you see. If these men had just bothered to canvass the neighborhood, tell us about Job. What's he done that's evil? They knew he hadn't done anything evil. And so they were also appalled by these awful accusations. And I like the way it says, what it says then, they stir themselves up against the godless. You see, the first thing they're doing is speaking in defense of Job are holding themselves ready to speak in defense of Job. And I was reminded of our larger catechism, requirement of the Ninth Commandment. The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. And then he goes on uh, to say that we are to... um, uh, and speaks from the heart freely, clearly, fully the truth and only truth The matters of judgment and justice a charitable esteem for our neighbor uh, love, loving, desire, rejoicing in their good sorrowing for and covering over their infirmities freely acknowledging their gifts and graces defending their innocence that's the responsibility that we have you know, so often we would rather be the gossips and the slanderers wouldn't we? it's so juicy how did you hear? No, we should be the ones saying, you have no right to say that. We must defend the name of the innocent. We must not jump into conclusions because A or B has suffered that they have sinned greatly or under God's judgment. And so they are actually contending or will contend in their own hearts, but later probably publicly as well. But now notice what happens, and that is they are actually going to be helped by the example of Job, the righteous will hold to his way, and he who has clean hands will grow stronger and stronger. Two things happen then when fellow believers observe Job's response. Now, it wasn't impeccable, but is insisting that he was not being punished because of sin, uh, and he's growing his faith to God. Two things then happens to them in the first place. Uh, they persevere. They don't know why it's happening to Job, but he's not denying God. And thus, they will persevere in the faith. But they also see then that through, through trials, that faith grows stronger and stronger. And these are the things that God does for us in our trials, but what I want you to note now, the way you handle affliction is a testimony to brothers and sisters to persevere, to stay the course. And in fact, as they serve you, they will grow in grace. Let that be an encouragement to you. As we think about persecution, I was reminded this morning of that great challenge that uh, Latimer made to Ridley. And I think Latimer was converted under Ridley, or or built him anyway. They're being burned at the stake. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust, shall never be put out. And in part, we sit here this morning because a candle was lit by the martyrs and that flame has not gone out. And so it is with your testimony. Sometimes when you can see no other reason for what's going on, just remind yourself that if God gives you grace to persevere, you're an encouragement to the rest of us to persevere are being watched we watch one another and so as we look pray for but look at our friends overseas and we can't imagine ourselves going through that they're an encouragement to us that if we are called upon God will give us the same grace that he's given them right now to persevere in their trials and so although Job was at wit's end God was hidden from him he knew he was walking uprightly and so he knew that Fellow believers would be encouraged by what was happening in his life, and you will be as well. This leads then, we've seen casting faith upon God and comforting oneself with encouragement to believers, and now the castigation of the materialism that's being offered by his uh, friends. He calls them to repentance in verse 10 Come again, all of you now. I do not find a wise man among you. He's already told them that. They have no wisdom. They have no insight into God's ways. Obviously, he's not being punished for wickedness because he knows that he's not wicked. And so he says, why don't you reconsider? I've given you evidence from general revelation, from visions we've all had from God, from the history of the church. These people, if you just ask them, could give you evidence. Repent. Turn away from this reckless provocation and accusation. Because as you persist as you are, there's not a wise man amongst the three of you. Because God has hidden knowledge from you. So then he makes his appeal to them. He castigates. They said, if you just repent. They didn't say if you repent, God will restore fellowship, did they? No, if you repent, God will restore your prosperity. That's part of what's irking him to no end. Yes, he's lost everything, but much more he's lost the fellowship with God. They don't offer him that. They offer him material blessings and prosperity. He says, look, men, there's no hope in what you are offering me. That's what he's saying. My days are past, verse 11. My plans are torn apart. Even the wishes of my heart, he said, I had these great plans, you know, for for my family and and my grandchildren. And um, how I could minister in the community as the chief of of all the elders. and, And how I've helped the poor and promoted righteousness. And It's all gone. My plans are torn apart. The wishes of my heart which were godly. <laughs> and then what do they do? They make night into day saying, The light is near in the presence of darkness. Yeah. Bildad said in 8.21, He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. And for promises in 11.17, Your life will be brighter than noonday and darkness would be like the morning. And Job is scoffing. That's not going to happen. Why isn't that? Because in verse 13, if I look, Sheol is my home. My bed is darkness. You, you promised me family and prosperity. He says, well, the pits, my father, the worm, my mother, and my sister. That's all I have to look forward to in death, in this life. If that's all I have to hope in, in this life. Where now is my hope, and who regards my hope? It's nothing. But then there's this note. Will it go down with me to Sheol? Shall we together go down into the dust? I think he's talking here about his hope. No hope in material possessions. He's already said that in his early confession. In uh, verse twenty of chapter one, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But Job says, I have an another hope. I want nothing to do with your hope. And that was our Savior. In the wilderness, nothing to do with the materialistic hopes that the, the tempter was setting before him of reputation and power and sustenance and fame and a great kingdom. He rejected all of that. As does Job. I think of the words of Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom. And there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail. And the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold. There be no cattle in the stalls. Pretty destitute, right? Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He's made my feet like hind's feet. Deer's feet. Makes me walk on high places. You reject the hopes of the world, my friends. You cling to the hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. The hope that uh, will not die. Death cannot destroy. Worms cannot eat your hope. Because your hope is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ for you in heaven. Christ who will bring you safely to himself. And so reject all compromise. They'll become temptations in your depression to compromise to maybe seek easy ways out perhaps it will be alcohol or drugs or losing yourself uh, in uh, movies or music or whatever Uh, you 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 don't compromise will not deliver you it wouldn't deliver job didn't deliver our savior it won't deliver our friends overseas. I won't deliver you if you're called upon ever to be in that condition. Pay for God's grace. No, I reject all materialistic options. I'm willing to be impoverished for the sake of glory. We'll talk about that one more time as we conclude this great book on Christian contentment. We live by faith. That's one of the lessons for today. Not by reason. We live by faith. And so the... The sorely afflicted believer gropes in the darkness, but gropes by faith, faith by which he cast himself on God, Uh, faith by which she encouraged herself that she will be a comfort to her Christian friends, faith by which we all will castigate the materialism of the world of health, wealth, uh, prosperity, gospel of all religious compromise. And so I call you again, my dear friends, to live by faith not to walk by sight, to walk by faith, regardless of the circumstances of your life, you know that God is for you. No one can be against you. You rest in Christ and in him alone. And not only do you rest in him, you know he will provide you then all the grace that you need. So we're going to come to the Lord's table. Perhaps you're having a hard time thinking about Christ in you. Perhaps you're having a hard time thinking that God has not cast you off. Well, God's given this for you, dear Christian friend, to speak to you in your senses, that as you take this bread and drink this wine, that Christ is for you, whether you can feel it or not. This is faith. In these sacraments, taking hold of Christ. Christ is for you. You lack assurance. Christ is for you. And yes, he's up in heaven but it's remarkable that now he stoops and he comes to us in this most wonderful way in the sacrament let us pray Great and glorious god we bless you and we praise your name Uh, lord we thank you that uh, uh, job is wisdom literature and you're teaching us by your spirit through his trials his own uh, limping forward and progressing and and regressing yet Steadily moving forward, Lord, that that is the Christian walk. We are viators, We are pilgrims. We pray you'll bless this to us. You'll give us grace, how, Lord, to deal with dark trials and depression and persecution. Give us this faith, Lord, this faith that casts itself on you. A faith that can actually be encouraged because we are an example to our Christian friends. Far and wide, faith that rejects all compromise and materialistic answers. And we prepare ourselves now, Lord, to come and feast on Christ. We pray that you'll further stir us up. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.